you're listening to Gender Ed, a podcast created and hosted by Virginia Tech's Women's Center. Join us in celebrating the experiences, achievements, and diversity within our campus community. Our conversations will explore the intersection of gender and other identities and cover topics on leadership, equity, well-being, and healthy relationships. Conversations in this episode may cover a range of topics such as race and or gender-based violence and abuse, police violence, and others. While we hope to have meaningful and relatable conversation, this podcast is not intended to provide therapy, legal counsel, or specific advice for meeting your unique needs around bias, violence, or trauma. To report a bias incident, please contact the Dean of Students Office at 540-231-3787 or use the reporting form found at dos.vt.edu. If you're in need of identity-based support, connect with the cultural and community centers at ccc.vt.edu or 540-231-8584. If you have questions, concerns, or needs related to your mental health and well-being, please contact Cook Counseling at 540-231-6557 for more information. You can also make an appointment for advocacy at the Women's Center via email to WC support at vt.edu or contact our office Monday through Friday, 8 to 5 at 540-231-7806. This episode is recorded in partnership with the Standpoints podcast, which is produced by Virginia Tech Publishing. The Standpoints podcast uses a Black feminist framework to talk about Black lives and experiences globally. You can find Standpoints on Instagram at StandpointsPod, on Twitter at StandpointsPod1, and on our Facebook page at Standpoints Pod. Welcome, you're listening to Gender Ed, a production of the Women's Center at Virginia Tech. I'm your host, Ashley, and I'm here with my colleague, Katie. Hi, thanks for joining us for our podcast today. Today, we're talking with Dr. Andrea Baldwin from our very own VT Sociology Department. Dr. Baldwin, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your professional experiences, or really what you do here at VT? Okay, thank you for having me on this episode. I was hired at Virginia Tech in the sociology department and under the sociology department there are small studies programs and so I'm split between Africana studies and women's and gender studies and I am their resident black feminist um, and so here um, I usually teach the Ujima living learning community class introduction to African-American studies I also teach the queer studies class using the lens of queer folks of color. And I teach the graduate seminar on black feminism. My particular interests and research is uh, around care and using an ethics of care in everything that I do, uh, particularly around my pedagogy. And so I write a lot about black feminist pedagogy. I do work on Caribbean women migration because I am from the Caribbean. I hailed from the small island state of Barbados and I do a lot of service stuff on campus with our Black communities. Thanks so much for sharing that with our listeners. Um, We're so excited to partner with you for not only this podcast but for a program that we're working on um, that we want to introduce to some of our listeners today. So we're focusing the podcast around a project that Dr. Baldwin and several other faculty and community partners are collaborating with us We're calling the project Discourse because it's an ongoing discussion that invites folks currently taking classes with our faculty, as well as others who may be interested in joining the conversation. The theme of the project this semester is focusing on interpersonal state and police violence against women and queer people of color. We will be 
reading and discussing Andrea Ritchie's book, Invisible No More, as one of the central and recurring co components of this program. And we're thrilled to be able to speak with Dr. Baldwin, who's a scholar of these topics here at BT and recommended the book. Before we jump into our topic of main discussion, we'd like to break the ice by playing a quick game. So we've been doing to open our episodes and get to know our guests a little more, a uh, classic party game of Would You Rather. So our first one is, would you rather sit through a Zoom lecture or write a long research paper? The long research paper. Reason being, I am not listening to someone talk because my attention span is horribly short. And so the research paper would mean that I still have to be doing something like writing and thinking, a research, uh, a Zoom lecture. I'm just sitting, listening and by the time five minutes has passed, my brain is probably like back in Barbados on the beach somewhere. So I would pick research paper. Okay, all right, fair, fair. Our second question is, would you rather participate in a teach-in or a sit-in? A sit-in. I mean, teach-ins are radical too, don't get me wrong, they're both radical methods, but the sit-in sounds like badass. All right, all right, I can see it, I can see it for sure. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Really appreciate you. I know, I know sometimes icebreakers can get on our nerves or see, feel silly this time of year, but I think it really helps folks understand who we're talking to and listening to and, and um, where this conversation is coming from. So we really appreciate it. It's so fun to get to know, um, especially our faculty members on a little bit more of a personal level that you all are powerful and impressive humans, but you're still humans. I mean, you have all these unique experiences that brought you to the place. So I really appreciate you sharing that. So our first question is, you're partnering with us on a new project called Discourse this semester. As part of that program, we will be discussing gendered issues in both traditional texts and contemporary texts, such as media. Um, you recommended Invisible No More by Andrea Ritchie as one of our main discussion pieces and being the traditional text that we'll be covering. So can you share why you chose this book and then how it intersects um, with your teachings and your research? For I, I, I chose the book for a number of reasons. Um, one, it is con more contemporary. Uh, two, Andrea Ritchie is an, uh, an activist at heart. Um, she writes and she's in the academy, but she's an activist. She's also a lawyer. Um, her name is Andrea. My name is Andrea. She has Caribbean roots um, and she's a lawyer and I'm a lawyer. And so <laughs> um, there are several similarities that drew me to her, but um, the first time I met Andrea Ritchie was at National Women's Studies Association, and that's actually the first time I heard about the book. In the room was Andrea Ritchie, and there were, this was a critic, uh, a critic panel about her book. But it was like these phenomenal Black women, Mary Hooks, an activist, and uh, Beth Ritchie, whose book I teach. And so I wanted to go to this panel to see um, more. I'd heard Andrea Ritchie's name but I wanted to learn more about the book. And then I walk into the room and in the room is Angela Davis. <laughs> and Angela Davis is in the room. And I think also uh, Barbara Ransby is also in the, in, in the room. So th this is like this, this, this black feminist love fest happening around this text. And so I immediately like in the room, I buy the text. Um, and so I get home and the text is there and I devour this text and it is, it gives such a historical but also a contemporary take on the surveillance and violence, not only on Black women, cis women, but also it talks about um, trans women, um, it talks about um, 
people of color, so not specific to Black women. And, I, and, and she's pulling not only from her legal experience, so it resonates with me on that level, but she's pulling from her activist experience. Um, also knowing that she works closely with Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, and so when I read the book, um, I felt like it was taking us to, Beth Ritchie's book gets us to, gets us into the meat of what is going on around surveillance, um, state surveillance uh, around and, and violence on Black women's bodies. But Andrea's book then picks up from Beth and brings us to this contemporary period where we are reading about names that Beth does not talk about because her book was written a little, a little earlier. And so these are folks that I'm reading about, but Andrea's book actually is, is she's writing about people who I have lived through and I know about the same circumstances, at least through the media and through networks, the circumstances surrounding these people's death. I've heard their names. I have seen videos of them being killed or being surveilled. Uh, you see the newspaper clippings and the, and the social media, uh, everything. And so it was that she was putting historical context and also this intellectualizing the, the stories that we just hear on the media. And for me, that was powerful. And I think I chose the book for this particular uh, project discourse because I felt like while in my graduate class, Beth Ritchie's book is an amazing book to have in that space, in the discourse space, I felt we were dealing with undergraduate students who some of them have lived through and heard anecdotally about some of the lives that Andrew Ritchie is talking about, but to read about things that they've seen in social, on social media or heard about um, in, in kitchens and, and wherever they've heard about it, gives them some context as to why these things are important. I want to jump in with a, with a follow-up comment slash question about this, contempt, this contemporary intellectualizing, right? You're talking about putting this framework around understanding experiences that we are familiar with. Why do you think that is so powerful when we are working with undergraduate students, right? And you referenced, you know, they, they may have heard these names before. What is the importance about it being so contemporary, so of our time, and also theoretical? I think the importance and, and like, because I'm accustomed to teaching undergraduates, I use also anecdotal uh, references, um, things in the contemporary media. But I think what happens is that in the contemporary media, we get like a drop in the bucket and you hear about this thing and we move on to the next thing. And there's not a pause or a break in between hearing about the last murder or brutal, you know, beating or something until we move on to the next one, right? And so you're constantly inundated with all of this violence and surveillance and trauma. And there's never a moment to really pause and process what is really happening, why it is happening, uh, what are the historical resonances in this. And so for me, the intellectualizing of it, the, um, the thinking through it, the kind of getting to the why this is happening and showing that it is rooted in the history of uh, slavery, a history of stereotyping of Black women, a history of homophobia and transphobia, a history of the police 
being rooted in um, the Nadir uh, and the reconstruction, post-reconstruction period, students don't really get in this contemporary moment as murder after murder happens to, die, to kind of connect the dots. And so while they are passionate about going out there and, and protesting and, and going out there and, and fighting for racial justice and for gender justice and just for justice in general, what happens is that we need to, there needs to be an understanding of where this started, how it has progressed, what are the words that we can use to make this, to, to make the connections between what is happening, how you are feeling, uh, and the historical context, um, because we need to give language to this, you know, and feelings and affect is we can't discount feelings and affect. They are raw and they're powerful, but we need to, I think, um, be able to give language to what we're feeling. And I think Andrea and others who are working in this space are doing that. And how we sometimes need to be careful when we are out there doing this activist work that we're not repeating ourselves mistakes of the past, because this, this is not new. This has been happening forever. Um, but what has happened before, and I think what makes Andrea's book very powerful, is that when we think about the killing of people of color, we usually equate that with males. Um, and so I think what's powerful about this book is that we look and see how there were mistakes made in the civil rights movement, in the movement for racial justice in the 60s and 70s, where women were ostracized, where queer people were ostracized, where people with disabilities were ostracized. There was this very narrow framework. And I think this book helps us to see why Say Her Name is important, why Me Too was important, why all of these other movements are important when we are looking at racial justice. It cannot just be about Black men. It has to be about Black lives or all people, all people of color. Um, it has to be about, like you said earlier on, I think, Ashley, it has to be about the human. And so I'm a, I, I, Sylvia Winter is one of my favorite philosophers, Black feminist philosophers, and she talks about the human. And I know I'm going on for a long time because this is my jam. <laughs> and so Sylvia Winter talks about the human in a way where when we understand that we cannot separate gender from race, that we need to think about the human and the construct of the, of the human as a genre. And that genre is white men. And so when we are fighting for these things, we cannot separate anything. We cannot separate blackness and gender from the genre of the human and how the genre of the human made everyone else who, who's not considered human, um, as she says, put at the nadir of the chain of, of humanity, right? And so I think Andrea's book does a really good job in showing all of that. Awesome, thanks so much. Dr. Baldwin, you talked about um, the history and the thinking about where all of this started from and really recognizing the importance of that as we are experiencing these things in real time. And the first chapter of Invisible Memoir summarizes very quickly a very long and detailed historical experience of women of color and specifically their experiences with violence. Can you share how the historical and current violence of people of color impact the Black community today? That question, so let me start by saying that um, my lens is always um, transnational lens because I wasn't raised here, I wasn't born here. Um, I was raised and born in the Caribbean 
um, where on the island that I was that I that I was born, Barbados, the population is 95% black. I'm not saying that anti-black sentiments don't exist in the Caribbean. They do. You know, growing up in the Caribbean, and, and I must for our listeners disclaim that I am a light-skinned black woman. And in the Caribbean, race and class, although I grew up very poor, race and class are synonymous with each other. Um, and so even though I grew up in a poor household, I, I have light skin privilege in the region and also here in the U.S. to some extent. Um, but I say all that to say that I never felt like I needed to, to make myself small. I never felt like I needed to uh, be careful what I said. Like one of my grad students always says, you have uh, red woman energy, meaning that I talk back. I, I'm feisty. I let people know what I feel and what I think, and I don't care. That was kind of incubated in the Caribbean society where, you know, I had light skin privilege, so I could tell, say what I wanted, and I never felt as though I needed to make myself small. You know, I never felt like if I, if I was pulled over by a cop or anything, that my life was going to be, was, was threatened. But coming here, and to be honest, having my son, who is now eight, I remember having this really, really heated argument with my husband at the time. And my son was, pro this was around Michael Brown's shooting. And I said to my husband, my husband was born and raised in Alabama, the deep south. And I said, like, it's so unfair that I would never tell my son that he needs to make himself small when he's pulled over by the police. Why would I do that? Like, it, there's just something about that that made me feel as though I was breaking his spirit um, because he's human and he has the right to express himself just like anyone else. And my husband said to me, but I will, because I know what it means to grow up in, or in, in white America as a black man. And that, for a point, at some point in time, that, that, that broke me because like, you know, he's cute now. <laughs> he's, he, or he was cute then, he was too, you know, he didn't seem threatening. But when does my son become a threat? I teach young men in my class and young women, young people, young Black people, particularly in my Intro to African American Studies class. And they're in a living learning community where they're learning to love themselves and Blackness. Like we have to create these communities for our people. But once they are outside of those communities, we cannot protect them. And that is the trauma that we have to deal with for me as a mother, but just for Black people in general. The contemporary experience is not isolated, right? And, and there's both, for me, as someone who is white, there's sadness in recognizing that and that history and legacy of violence. And I hear from others also this story of resilience and strength that you can also draw from and this um, history that builds a community of a particular, around a particular experience. And even though that experience is negative, the community reclaiming the love for the identity and the community that's generated from those experiences sounds like it can be very powerful. I definitely, that is so true. And I think also, you know, at some point, I'm just tired of being strong. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm tired of being resilient. I'm tired of having to wear that strength and resilience on my shoulder all the time. It is exhausting. You know, the strong black woman trope is killing us. It is killing us. And Melissa Harris Perry, her book, um, Sister Citizen, 
you know, she talks about, and others as well, I'm just talking about her because she came to mind, but others as well, they're, they're talking about how the strong black woman trope was developed to counteract, counteract historical tropes of the lazy black woman or the hoochie mama or the mommy or the Jezebel or the matriarch or so that society, so that we show society that we are not the stereotypes that you uh, claim that we are. We're not the people who are trying to take advantage of society the way that you say we are. And so we've created this strong black woman trope that we're saying, no, we're not that, we are this. And so we have to be strong all the time. We have to show to society that we are not taking, we are hardworking. And I'm like, they got a lot of people out there that don't work as hard as black women. And we are dying because of this. No, I, I appreciate you sharing that. I think um, we're talking about interpersonal violence, but it's so much more like unintended consequences of the mental health and the well-being of our Black communities. So I really appreciate you sharing that because um, hopefully that'll give our viewers some insight that it's not just this one day, this one bad thing happened to this one Black person. It's this creation of this culture that is fear, that is terror, that is sadness, um, and that it's constantly counteracting these stereotypes that people have placed on them, which has detrimental consequences, especially as you mentioned with our black women, that strong black black woman piece that they are trying to so fulfill because they have to prove quote unquote something to somebody. So I really appreciate you sharing that. And I just wanna say one more thing to that because Katie, uh, Ashley, what you said was um, mental health, which is a, another big piece. When I teach my class, I start and end with mental health. I start and end with care. And so, one of the first classes is a class that is taught by Yasmin, who is uh, at the Cook Counseling Center. And she also checks in with them during the middle of the semester and she ends, at the, she ends the, the, the class at the end. And that is important for me, I think, because what happens is that part of this ongoing culture also that tells Black people that they, they should be strong, um, that they shouldn't, to, to counteract the stereotypes of not taking handouts and stuff like that is that in in most black communities mental health is seen as something that uh that white people deal with like white people go to therapy white people go to counseling black people don't do that you know and they don't do that because you know we we've suffered a lot and we've gone through it and we've gotten through it and we can do it and so just suck it up and keep it moving because nobody don't owe you nothing you have to work hard for what you want and there's this stigma around going to get help um, around mental health and, 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 and care. Um, and so that too causes the trauma to continue to fester and be generational in our societies. And so I think that we need to also be very mindful of how the legacy of, of violence and surveillance of black and brown bodies also mean that these um, communities don't feel as though they need to um, engage in any type of mental health or counseling because it is either stigmatized so you don't need to you don't need to go get it because you are stronger than this yeah thank you for sharing that and just to take one more tangent off that and not that you're necessarily the expert in this specifically but we talked about how everything is intersectional obviously but self-care has become a very white um and today white assist uh, woman Experience. liberal <laughs> yes so um neoliberal 
capitalistic. Yes. No, yes, absolutely. to the yeah. capitalistic, like $50 on your bath bomb. I know. Right. <laughs> right. So if you um, maybe could share, not necessarily your personal, but if you wanted to give some insight to maybe what self-care looks like for Black Americans, um, because we're talking about, first of all, different types of stress that our Black Americans and our Black community are experiencing, but how that maybe we can work to destigmatize um, that self-care and that help-seeking behavior. So Melissa Harris-Ferry, again, just, to, just because she talks about this in a really great article in Elle magazine, she talks about something called squad care. That for me, and, and self-care look is different because the Black community is not a monolith, right? So let me just say that. Um, I go to therapy. I sought counseling really late as, as, as an adult because I was going through some professional issues and they were causing me not to sleep and, you know, they were having a negative impact on my relationship. But I, I had no idea what to expect. And I think for most Black people, that's when counseling really starts happening, like when you make that decision in college or as an adult. But there's no, like, you see something happening to your child, and so you go counseling. That doesn't happen a lot. And, and also, like you said, it's expensive. Like, a lot of folks can't afford, and a lot of folks don't have benefits from their employer to take advantage of, of, of counseling because of those things, because it is not something that you learn actually frowned upon in, in some communities. Um, and because it's expensive, Black communities historically have relied on each other. Um, and so Melissa Harris Perry's uh, Squad Care gets to the heart of that, where you have your people, your squad, your girls, and you, you take care of each other. Um, and I try to practice in my own life something like that for my students because I understand um, being at a predominantly white institution, sometimes what happens, well, most of the time what happens is that you feel alone, you feel isolated, um, you feel, and especially uh, for students whose parents did not go to college or university, you don't necessarily know how to navigate such a huge campus where most of the people don't look like you. And so we form, I try to form community very early on um, with undergrads and graduate students. And with my graduate students, for instance, our self-care looks like we started a writing group. I write with my grad, uh, with grad students. Um, it's called Solidarity. The writing group is called Solidarity. We write together and we have extended the writing group to the community. So we have community people who come in and write. We might not be working on the same things. We are at different levels in terms of our career trajectory, but creating that community, we bring food, we, we take a break, we laugh, we have fun. Um, there's one of the grad students who has a baby and you're like, bring the baby. Somebody's gonna take care of the baby while we're writing. You know, like creating that type of community um, once a week. And I think people like the same Bell Hooks, Audre Lorde, just other black women has, they have been saying this and writing about this forever. Black women, black people, people of color have always been around the kitchen table, have been making quilts, have been in the hair salons, creating community that way, taking care of each other. I had a conversation with a person who asked me to be on a podcast a few weeks ago, brilliant black woman. And she was like, I wanna pay you. And I was like, how about this? Black women have been bartering forever. You don't have the money to pay and that is okay. How about we barter? And that comes from a long tradition of black women taking care of themselves. 
where we had midwives who would go deliver babies and get a sack of potatoes. You know, like that's the way we've been caring for each other. It is not steeped in necessary any exchange of money because Black communities generationally don't have that type of money and have been considered property. So as property, you had to learn how to take care of each other, especially when you knew, knew, when you knew that your lives and your relationships were so tenuous and based on someone else's description of you and ownership of you. And I think that the type of care we engage in now is based on that legacy. The fact that community is so important, that's why we have our cultural centers on campus. Um, it's fantastic to hear that you are also creating your own little space um, in a non-COVID time to bring people together. I think it's just making those connections can be really powerful. So thank you for sharing. Um, when we talked in our first episode with um, Jess from Cook and Swathi from um, Hokey Wellness and Jess acknowledged that people like us, people like myself, white, helping professionals have actually created systems that have historically caused harm, right? So it's not all, it's not only the stigma, but it's also what will uh, my experience of these systems and these processes and these helpers, quote unquote, be, right? There's a history and a legacy of why there's a stimulus, like you're talking about the, the history of these care communities and community care that's been created um, and handed down or passed around, right? The resources have been shared in different ways that are less hierarchical and less connected to systems because we know that the history and legacy of, for example, social work, right? My, my One of my fields, right? Is not one that has been kind to communities of color. And in fact, in times has been directly in opposition to what you're talking about as necessary, right? That those strategies for resilience, resistance, and um, care have been actually actively dismantled by um, systems such as, you know, quote unquote, helping services. And so I think that's really important for particularly our non-Black listeners to think about, right, what systems do I find accessible and not just financially accessible, not just do I have the time, do I have the resources, do I have the benefits? That's, an, that's a, another part of the conversation I think that's very important. But mm -hmm. also, like, what's it reasonable to expect from me? Like, if I go to counseling, should I have to explain my identity and experience, right, over and over? Or can I find a counselor who might know? Can I find someone who I can relate to on that level? And I think, you know, we need to also be thinking about not just the stigma because that can place the burden on the community, right? But also place the burden of repairing harm done um, and creating new resources that are more um, appropriate for and needed by um, communities of color and black communities particularly. Oh yeah, oh yeah, everything, everything you just said, <laughs> everything. We've creating the, these structures and these systems of harm because we want, we, there's a way that we see the norm there's a way that we equate normal with whiteness and anything outside of that is wrong or pathologized. And you end up tear, you end up causing so much harm and trauma to people who have created their own ways of being and existing and surviving and thriving. Um, and these systems that have been passed down from generations, these systems that have um, been developed to, to help people just be. Um, and they're torn apart because they're not seen as how things should be, how things should be normal, how things should be white. It has just caused so, so much harm. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for bringing up that point, um, Katie. 
So to close off our podcast, we have one more question for you. And this kind of ties back to um, Invisible visible No More. What's one step that our non-Black community, Aboriginal Tech, can do to learn more and further understand this important topic? I mean, this, this just sounds so cliche and blah, but I think listening is big. Like, I think anything else that I can say beyond listening and opening up yourself to to different experiences is premature because I think it all starts with being open and listening. I mean, the, the racial divide is real. It is real. And so I think that listening, really truly listening, even if you think you know a lot, even if you think you are the most radical person on the earth, like, there's a way that specific situations can bring up things that you never thought of, expose questions that you have never answered before that you think you know the answer to, expose just blind spots. And, and I'm not saying that you can know everything because I don't know everything. Um, we don't know everything, but I think really truly listening and not only listening for listening sake but being willing to listen like really listen and learn and for that moment that you're listening just discard of the ego for a while uh i keep saying affect is important i'm writing a book that has something about affect in it and so affect is important listen with affect for the other person and don't think that you know everything even if you've been doing the work for a long time especially if it's not your lived experience Thank you. That's super powerful. And I think something that you've said multiple times on this um, episode and something that we talked about a lot in our previous episode with um, some of the cultural centers is that our marginalized communities are very diverse too. So just because you've listened to a few people's experience with that within that community does not therefore either make you an expert or that that is the experiences of everybody in that community. So I think that you said it was simple, but I think that's really powerful that listening and continued listening um, is really important and something just to do a quick promo push as a reminder to Melissa recommended um, ins instead of tokenizing individuals either in your classrooms and your residence hall um, even in your community is to engage with the cultural centers that we have on camp campus to start that listening process because they have so many um, really cool powerful faculty members that they engage with they have um, speakers coming to camp well coming via zoom to campus and so there's a lot of opportunity to listen and learn that doesn't necessarily involve tokenizing people that are around you. Last week we launched a new program called Discourse which brings together students, staff, and faculty to discuss relevant issues of gender in society. Our discussion piece was Disclosure, a new Netflix documentary that looks at transgender depictions in film and television, revealing how Hollywood simultaneously reflects and manufactures our deepest anxieties about gender. Next week, we will begin exploring the first few chapters of Invisible No More. We offer two discussion opportunities every other week. Check out our website, womencenter.vt.edu slash events slash discourse to sign up for a time that works for you. Dr. Baldwin, is there anything that you're working on um, here in the near future that you'd like to share with our audience? So I am working with the Ujima Living Learning Community at Virginia Tech. Uh, for those are Virginia Tech folks, please support our living learning communities. Also, I uh, will be teaching the Black Feminist Graduate Seminar in the spring. So if you are interested, please sign up. 
um, to learn more about the amazing work of Black feminists and Black feminist theorizing, and also support Virginia Tech Publishing and our graduate student text that was published in 2019 uh, called Standpoints Black Feminist Knowledges, and it is available for free download at the Virginia Tech Publishing website. Thank you to our guest, Dr. Baldwin, for joining us today to have this important conversation on violence against women and queer people of color. This has been episode three of Gender Ed, a podcast from the Women's Center, hosted by Ashley and Katie. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you join us next time.